And that is a common mistake I've seen, whether it's working while I was working at a company or, you know, I've seen on the other side being outside counsel is mm-hmm. that everyone always comes to us when there's a problem mm-hmm. um, or it wasn't approved. But, you know, with cannabis, it's, you know, a fast paced industry, but um, it also requires a lot of, um, like I said, approval from governmental bodies. And you need to give them time and space to be able to like, you know, approve this. So you're not wasting money. You're Mm. not spending time on the business side. Um, And that's the biggest, you know, mistake. Hey guys, uh, this is Sid Patel, your host. Uh, welcome to the Wine, Whiskey and Weed Show. I'm here with Akshita Singh. She's an associate at one of the leading law firms in uh, Chicago, you know, who also specialize in cannabis. So we're going to talk about basic cannabis 101 law here. I think mainly we want to focus on international companies trying to enter U.S. as well. So Akshita, let's, let's uh, you know, uh, spend some uh, knowledge out here. So welcome to the show and uh, please uh, introduce yourself to our audience. Of course. Thank you so much, Sid, for having me here today. I'm honored. Um, my name is Akshita, like Sid mentioned. I'm currently attorney at Dickinson Wright, which is uh, headquartered in Michigan and currently one of in their off- I'm in their office in Chicago. I am a second year associate. I have been in cannabis since probably 2017. I started as an intern at Cresco Labs, which is an MSO, which is a multi-state operator. Um, and I spent about two years there. And then I shifted towards a law firm called Lock Lord, and they were building their cannabis practice. Then um, when I first started at Cresco, it was just medical. And then when I went to Lock Lord, it was, it just became recreational. So cannabis was really picking up, especially um, in the legal industry. And then as soon as law school ended and I took the bar, I ended up joining Dickinson Wright in their cannabis regulatory practice. And now, um, you know, cannabis has become a huge part of the legal industry. So it just doesn't touch regulatory. So now I've been doing um, banking, regulatory work. I try to stay away from real estate. It's not my favorite. So if you're hearing this and you love real estate, um, and then a little bit um, of m a So that's kind of like how my career has developed. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and I've been enjoying it and I've been loving it and I continue to still be in the industry. Super. And, and uh, where, did you have to study or it's a basic law thing and then you selected cannabis as an intern or was it part of the uh, curriculum as well? No, that's a good question. So cannabis has started showing up in maybe some legal classes now, especially in law school. My last semester that I was there, we did have a cannabis law class. But, you know, what's funny is like back in the day when I started that, like, it was kind of like a hush hush situation. Like, oh, are you sure you want to do cannabis? Like, how is it going to look on your resume? Like, um, I'm originally from Texas. What is that going to look like? (laughs) The, The nation was still a little hesitant. So now where we are and what I've seen has developed what it is today and how like everyone wants a piece of the pie now, mm-hmm. uh, you know, has been really like awesome to see. And what do you specialize in? You know, what what's sort of your, you know, uh, day look like and really most of the what kind of subject matter are you really expert in in, in, in your firm? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So um, before, you know, with the two previous jobs I had at um, Cresco and uh, Lock Lord. I think it was based heavily on like applications, mm-hmm. a lot of 
regulatory work compliance when it comes to like advertising, marketing, um, just having uh, correct documents with regulators, making those relationships. And then now my practice has really shifted mainly on my own virtue. Um, being a good attorney, you know, is to be able to spread your wings out pretty out wide. So I love a little bit of the banking, you know, that interests me. I do like M&A. I do a lot of securities work now. So I've kind of like expanded, but the cool part is a lot of it is still cannabis companies. Like cannabis companies need everything these days besides just regulatory work. So, you know, it will be a banking deal, but it'll be a cannabis client. Mm. Um, it could be M&A, but it's a cannabis client. So um, regardless of just focusing on the regulatory, I've kind of expanded it beyond that. Sure, great. So let's, let's go right into, you know, uh, something like if, if I wanted to set up the cannabis company, right? If I'm a local, uh, I, we can divide this, you know, one for international uh, companies who is maybe an international citizen would be a right word you know, trying to set up a company in, in US. Uh, and I'm mm -hmm. sure, I mean, maybe every state has a different law, uh, you know, for setups for cannabis companies. And then one scenario you can give us, you know, for a green card holder or a US citizen trying to set up a company. So what kind of uh, processes are we looking at here? Of course. So really good question. Both um, are kind of going to be in the same realm. So with international businesses, you have to know that like, you know, at the end of the day, this is still federally illegal. So you're going to skip that part and just go straight to the states. You're going to mm. figure out what state you want to apply in. So if you're an already existing cannabis company, that's an international, um, you know, that has a parent company on international grounds, then the first thing you're going to find is counsel in the state where you want to apply. Mm -hmm. uh, or even if you want to acquire, you're going to need an entity in that state. Like you mm -hmm. already mentioned, your question everything super state specific mm -hmm. so you want to do your research and figuring out what state if there's licenses available can you acquire details beyond that do your research and then you want to set up an entity find local counsel set up your entity from there um, whether that's an llc you know corporation things like that you know i'd advise you know getting compliance or an attorney to advise on that i, I thought that uh, for, uh, foreign citizens cannot own a cannabis company so they can is it you know, that's a good question. So there is a little shift in the industry now. So mm -hmm. a lot of states um, have had a requirement in their um, application saying that you have some type of residency requirement. I think that's what you're referring to. So yeah, like, like alcohol, you know, a little bit, you know, it's like you yeah. have to do this police clearance and all that other stuff. Yeah. So with cannabis, you don't have to do that, but you would have to like in the application in order to win or if it's a merit-based application. Um, like, let's say Illinois. So Illinois was um, saying that you had to be an Illinois resident for the past five years. Okay. And so that's a residency requirement. Um, but there has been some turn, I would say, in Troy, Michigan and Maine. Courts are looking at this and turning it, saying that you can't force to have residency requirements because mm -hmm. it goes against a constitu constitutional um, mm -hmm. law that we have that says it's against the dormant commerce clause, which means that we can't favor our in-state and push out out-of-state residents, you know? In and this are, sense, this, uh, are there solutions to this? Like usually, you know, accounting firms or legal firms take one person and be a, a partner if they're a residing company and then 99% can be, let's say, a UK citizen or an Australian guy sitting there. Are there solutions for this? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that happens quite often. So, mm -hmm. you know, going mm -hmm. beyond that, like 
going back to the question of like how to do that the, the second step i would suggest after you figure out where to find a local partner and vet them like that is absolutely important the industry is brand new and it's still developing um everyone comes from different paths we're all just trying to build this together you want to vet your partner because if you're on international grounds and you have a state that you're applying and your partner actually lives there and mm -hmm. is doing all, you know, the local work, whether it's lobbying or making those connections, you want to have a good partner, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, I think there is a lot of, uh, uh, maybe you can correct, uh, you can help me here. I'm sure there is a lot of monthly compliance, like alcohol, where you have to file in reports. And so you will need someone ongoing for, you know, uh, taking care of those kind of filings, right? Like uh, your taxes and other kind of special cannabis filings. Absolutely, because mm. it's so heavily regulated, and I'm sure you can attest to this with alcohol, that everything you do is pretty much reported to the government, like all the regulators. So anything in Illinois, you know, if your ownership changes, if you get employees, they have to be badged um, a little bit. If you get new investors, if you get new um, uh, equity or debt, you're given out. Mm -hmm. Everything is reported. So that's like my favorite part is constant compliance and just mm -hmm. constantly, you know, updating and being on top of it. Um, with a disclaimer, things are constantly changing, right? This isn't set mm -hmm. law. So to really have your team or your experts or legal counsel to be there and show you when laws change and to guide you as you go through it. Got it. One of the themes, I mean, we have added in this year's, one of the pillars in Cannabis Drinks Expo for 2023 is sort of expanding it to international uh, theme and attracting uh, CBD companies around the world to enter USA, right? And I, I, a lot of people ask me that uh, this and that. So I have some questions. I thought, let me just ask you live here, right? So of uh, one, of the, one of the question which I assumed maybe a myth or, you know, was that a law for an Australian CBD brand uh, coming to Illinois would be same as a, a brand from, let's say, California coming to Illinois because it's just state specific end of the day. So the rules for anyone out of the state are the same. Uh, so how does that work? Let's say an Australian CBD brand want to find a co-packer in Illinois versus a Californian is brand looking to enter. Of course, no. So um, as long as you know, there's no that like we were talking about. Usually in CBD, there isn't those residency requirements and CBD is a little lax because it's federally legal now because mm -hmm. hemp is legal. Mm -hmm. So you're able to, you know, like any international brand, like how okay. we, a lot of American companies go out instead of at the end of the day, it's just business law. And yep. so um, being able to just set that entity up, um, you know, following the state requirements, filing those fees, getting your owners disclosures, the exact same thing. So, so CBD yeah. is like normal business, and but THC has different uh, rules, yeah. right? So yep. what's yep. that? Yeah. So like I was saying, so it depends on what state. Um, I'm an expert, and I would say in Illinois. So Illinois mm -hmm. was a merit-based application, but they only had certain windows where you could apply. So we don't have like, oh, all year long, you can apply. So you would have to figure out when the application is released, apply even for, for the it. brands, even on the supply side. I thought it's just dispensary side. Nope, everything, A to Z. Mm. So it's called vertical integration. When you start with cultivation, processing, and dispensary, that's how, like, you know, think of it like you're growing it, you're processing it, and then you're giving it to the dispensary. Um, all of those have to be um, licensed and approved and awarded. And then on top of that, even um, transportation now, you have to have a license if you want to even transport to each one of those. Yeah, no, I get it. Uh, 
but I, there is no like uh, bottleneck uh, to the number of applications for if I want to open a, a trucking company or a warehouse or a private label brand, there is, I can, right? Like immediately, I don't have to wait like dispensaries, like a locker system or something. Um, are you talking about specifically just growing THC cannabis itself? Um, let, let's say, you know, uh, particularly talking about an exact case of a private label uh, THC brand, you know, uh -huh. which has THC in it, like a, a cannabis beverage, pretty yeah. much, you know, uh, from Germany, uh, for example, you know, uh, wants to enter Illinois. Uh, what would be uh, the requirement for that? Got it. No, that makes sense. So um, a lot of those, you know, I think we're going to touch on this later is co-packing agreements. So Got like you're as long as they're not the ones touching the actual THC, um, you know, because that's going to be that's a separate category. Mm. But like if you're the brand and you're the party A in that um, agreement. Yes, absolutely. Start your warehouse, you know, set up shop. Um, and then you're just going to have to partner with the um, companies to be able to actually infuse or process, you know, like you said, in a beverage company. So you have your brand ready. You have all the advertisement, mm -hmm. advertisement. you know how you want to market it here. You just have to have that co-packing agreement and then be able to create that partnership and then have that company party B in that situation actually go sell the product for you. Got it. Cool. We'll, we'll touch base on that uh, after a couple of questions. Uh, let's go on, on the agreements side, right? Like, I think that's what really, you know, lawyers are for, uh, you know, to, to draft that uh, amazing agreement. Uh, what are the tips you would give, you know, uh, in drafting or, or maybe five important points you must cover, you know, in, in any sort of a cannabis agreement can be between a supplier and a brand or usually you know, co-pack part is more interesting to sort of our community, uh, but please uh, give us some limelight on you know, some standard SOPs for an agreement. Yeah, no, of course. Okay, so the first one I would say is um, all or most of your contracts should be subject to regulatory approval. So usually on the business aspect, you know, we see business decisions are already happening before they come to attorneys, which is mm -hmm. great. And so let's say we have party A and party B, and we'll use co-packing in this instance to make it easier. So party A would be your brand and party B would be your co-packer. So the mm -hmm. one holding the license. Mm -hmm. So they come together, they can make their business decision. But then when they come to the, um, the legal side of it and we actually need to draft that agreement, usually, I'm not saying all the time, but it's subject to state approval. Their state mm -hmm. wants to say everything um, on who has ownership, what type of ownership, what threshold, what's going on, your brand, your advertising, that's going to be approved, right? You can have your business decision and you have that beverage, but what you put on it, what you label it, how much THC, everything needs to go wow. through the regulatory approval. So even the agreement has to be submitted to the state, like the, the partnership agreement? Whether it's the exact agreement itself or some type of, you know, version of mm -hmm. it or some type of summary, but usually, yes. Got it. Like, Government, depending on each state, but government, you know, the regulatory approval is very important. So as mm -hmm. these decisions are going on, that mm -hmm. subject to regulatory approval language and a clause is extremely important. So you don't sign up for agreement. And let's Got say it. If, it, if it doesn't get approved or it takes a while to get approved, you're not, you know, paying those fees like mm -hmm. immediately. Yeah. So that would be number one. Um, number two, because you know, those business decisions are happening before it hits market. An mm -hmm. NDA is always nice to have. So, yeah. So a non-disclosure um, to make sure, you know, that 
whenever information is exchanged and it's confidential between the two parties as decision as the business decisions are going on that mm -hmm. you know no information is leaked um i would say that the cannabis industry is still quite small and mm. there's only handful of big players and especially if you're a smaller company you know you want you want to protect your information i would say mm. yeah and so then, on that if you don't mind one of the one yeah. of the follow-up uh on detail which you can explain is how to solve that problem uh, i was talking with one of the let's say the companies like vertosa right like who are in the making part and the formulation part mm -hmm. uh so uh one of the problems they have is you know the bottling and the packers are usually the volume game. So for them, it's like really get more stuff out. But the brand yeah. owner wants to make sure the quality is protected uh, and the IP and everything is protected. So uh, how do you, you I mean, I'm, if it's not a, like if it's not your point two, I think I think that's what you meant. Like, how do you go detail like a couple of clauses, a couple of sentences that come to mind that can sort of protect uh, the quality of that brand owner? Yeah, I love this question. I was just I was just about to go into this. So we're both thinking on the same. Um, so yeah, quality um, control or process is very important, um, especially in these co-packing agreements. Because like you said, um, you know, it could that co-packer, I mean, that brand could be part of it. It could be an international one, mm -hmm. right? But you want to um, have an agreement with your co-packer. Um, you know, direct clauses, like they would have to figure out with the business itself. But whether that means, you know, an on-site approval or um, a constant working relationship or before any material change happens, they have that approval. Mm. Um, you know, uh, as what we're hearing, the trend is customers are very picky and if you get a bad name or bad reputation straight from the beginning, that is very harmful because like I said, the industry is very small. Your customers mm. are particular on what they like. And one bad instance with the product could you know, ruin the image for that customer. So quality control and quality process is extremely important in the agreements. You would want some type of ownership or control, I would say. You wouldn't have like percentage ownership, but you would have some type of control or authority that gives mm. you that able to, you know, have approval, have employees come approve or constant checks or sale requirements, you mm. know, um, sale reports, anything like that. Got it. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I think, is that your uh, two points or three? Three, and then the only other one I have is, um, like I said, so you wanna have any clauses that avoid giving too much control. So mm -hmm. in these co-packing agreements, um, let's say like you you have to think about it like, so party A is a brand and party B is a um, co-packer. And so mm -hmm. you're licensing some part of your brand, right? For them to co-pack it. Mm -hmm. And you're giving the party A a fee. You're giving them like a management fee or um, you know some type of control. And you don't want any instances where control can shift or is a little too lax mm -hmm. because once control starts shifting um, or they party, the brand starts getting more control of your, um, you know, your process and how you grow and things like that, that's all subject to regulatory approval. So depending mm -hmm. on the threshold, um, I'll give you an example. Michigan now has capped your management fees at 10%. If you exceed 10%, um, now you have 
so they uh, they think it's like now you have some type of control and you're going to have to go through extra process of having your brand get approved, having their owners be approved, more sub uh, regulatory approval. So you want to make sure in these contracts that you're not giving up too much control um, as a co-packer. And, and this the thing that you just said, 10% of the management fee, are this for listed companies or even for any company in cannabis? And for, so for Michigan, for now, it's any company in cannabis. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, yep. And those are all management service agreements. So it, it, it has been a big change. And, but, you know, but that's something that clients should be very mindful of before going into the agreements to, like I said, go back to your council, make sure everything is checked off, look at your contracts properly and look at regulatory approval. Mm -hmm. what, what kind of uh, issues that you see constantly coming, you know, because that tells me that these are the, these are the common mistakes that people are making, right? Uh, what are like five or six common sort of clients coming up with, I'm in this problem? Yeah, no, uh, specifically in agreements is what you're talking about, or yeah. Overall, just like, uh, you know, five biggest common problems that people come yeah. to your door with. I think I can sum those five into one is not involving legal or compliance from the beginning. So I, you know, not to <laughs> praise myself here or all the people, all the colleagues I work with, but because it's so regulated and because it's so um uh, is dependent on, you know, relationships and approval and mm -hmm. law constantly changing, getting legal or compliance involved from the right from the get-go is going to set you up for success. And that is a common mistake I've seen, whether it's working while I was working at a company or, you know, I've seen on the other side being outside counsel is mm -hmm. that everyone always comes to us when there's a problem um, mm -hmm. or it wasn't approved. But, you know, with cannabis, it's, you know, a fast paced industry, but um, it also requires a lot of, um, like I said, approval from governmental bodies, and you need to give them time and space to be able to like, you know, approve this so you're not wasting money, you're mm. not spending time on the business side. Um, and that's the biggest you know, mistake. I think. Got it. Let, let's go a little deeper into some problems, you know, just as you said, like they come up with problems, just like three or four. So that way there is an actual uh, subject matter to understand what kind of problems are there. Of course. Um, so, you know, um, I always enjoy a lot of the compliance of, you know, owners or employees or badging them. So um, being, I've seen biggest mistakes that like companies, especially when they start, um, take on new owners, um, new employees over promise, but you have to, all of that subject to regulatory approval. So you should be vetting everyone before they even get to that. For example, so Illinois requires a lot of like background checks, fingerprinting. Um, they require, um, uh, you know, criminal records and a lot of disclosure. So mm -hmm. before, as a business, if you're on the business side and you're on the management team, before you bring that person on, you should do your due diligence and vetting everything about them. So when you bring it to legal and they're just able to file this and get it approved, because the worst thing you could do in any regulated industry is disclose something and then retract from it. You want everything out on the table. You want you know all the information out in the beginning because you don't want to say that I certify this is correct and proper. And then mm -hmm. you know your employer owner comes back to you and said, Oh, shoot, I forgot to tell you this, you know, 
I was arrested here, this, then, and when, or mm. I didn't file my taxes, or mm. I wasn't, you know, I owe alimony here. And that can all be avoidable, um, you know, if you're able to like vet your partners and employees ahead of time. Got it. Got it. Yeah. That's a good one. Uh, what about, you know, like logistical issues or any uh, product damage issues? Does that sort of things come to your table? Definitely. Um, and so that comes a lot of what I was saying, the relationship aspect. Um, you know, in the beginning, when I was in 2017, everyone only had one or two players they would work with, whether it's like construction, like you're talking about, or product or cultivation, having these like people. Now, like, you know, it's become a bigger industry. I think people are floating around more. Um, so, you know, the mistakes I've seen then is people getting too hasty and then getting in a contract that they quickly want to or getting in a lease that they want to because they think it's right. And our biggest advice is always that this relationship you're going to have with this person is going to be long term, you know, mm -hmm. even as even as so far as having local relationships, because sometimes when you're getting real estate and it's a local government, they have to approve it. You have to go to their hearing. You have to convince them, hey, I want to set up shop here. I want to have my um, cannabis dispensary here. It's going to be profitable for your city for this X, Y, and Z reason. Mm -hmm. And slowing down is like, you know, logistic wise, like great, like getting counsel involved, vetting your partners, creating that relationships, asking the hard hitting questions. How long have they done this? What have they done? What are your stats? How often, um, you know, have things fallen through? Like getting mm -hmm. that, um, getting on the front end of that is, you know, would set you up for less logistical issues later on. Got it. I think it's, it's you know, obviously uh, we can see a lot of entrepreneurship DNA in cannabis these days because it's just, you know, a lot of people want to get and usually it's entrepreneurs, right? And usually they don't have patience. They will just try their own ways and do it. And I think that's what you're saying that, well, you know, take a, slowing down is a better thing, you know, because the long term uh, is and it's actually uh, you're always under the lens, right? So it's better to yeah. craft it properly. Great. So yeah. I think uh, let's go on on uh, starting a business, right? So one of the uh, things which I really wanted to ask was also for U.S. companies, you know, if mm -hmm. there are any uh, good states that they can practice on or easier, you know, which you would advise to start there uh, and why? Uh, and maybe two or three complicated states where you, you advise that maybe do that later. Yeah, no, that's a good question. So I think it just comes down to preference, but, you know, I'll give you mine in the sense. Um, so a lot of states were doing merit-based applications, which means that it was a competitive application. You apply, you pull a team together, and you want to get the most points possible. I see this trend kind of going away, and a lot of like acquisitions are happening now mm -hmm. because states have already given their licenses out. They're with um, you know the current holders, so a lot of acquisitions. Um, depending on what state and acquisitions are allowed and when ownership can change, they might have limits like that. You want to do research. Um, I would say overall, California is a tougher state. Um, there's a lot of players. They gave out a lot of licenses. There's pretty much no cap. There's no like statewide um, mm -hmm. regulation. There is a minimum, but really it comes down to local and city governments. And so sometimes I think that's a little more difficult to handle because if you want to set up multiple dispensaries or multiple shops or multiple cultivations, you're going to have to go to each local authority, mm. and follow their application, their rules, still get state approval, convince them, pay fees, 
and do that multiple times as many as you want. So true, true. I think one of the, I mean, I personally have a very small experience in this, but let's say we do event in South San Francisco one uh, cannabis, and then we do in this uh, Chicago area in Midwest, right? Literally Chicago is so easy. And so like, you know, uh, and over there, like we got to have cops at our show, you know, and all that other laws are there. Right. So you're right. And it's nothing to do with the San Francisco or California. It's literally this, that particular South San Francisco, has different laws. Exactly. No, and that um, getting, you know, I wouldn't, I'm not an expert in California cannabis law. I mean, because it goes like to down what you're saying, it goes down to the nitty gritty, Mm. you know, good counsel that's aware. um, And then really, you know, cultivating those relationships. But California, I would say is a tougher state overall. You're Mm -hmm. really hard. Applications could be strict, um, you know, depending on how many applicants there are and how many licenses. That could be tough, you know, because everyone is going to put their best application. It's like the A student, right? We're all going to work hard. We're all going to do this. We're going to pay a lot of money and we're going to get the most help and we're going to submit it. But if there's only a certain number of licenses, you know, what are you going to do? Now, I think now it makes sense that why this valuations are crazy in cannabis. It's because it actually the the supply is controlled and the license value is so much. It's like New Jersey liquor stores, right? Versus New York liquor stores, pretty much. (laughs) So yeah got it got it It, it's just uh so it's not really on the pnl activity but it's usually okay if california license is so hard to get the valuation of that company goes up versus uh, maybe illinois let's say absolutely yeah what's what's what are the two or three nice new states uh for you you would advise the easier compliance wise you know which are opening up on east coast what's your view on new york new jersey you know messages okay so um I would say New Jersey's um, so far has been doing a decent job. I think lo- the problem is um, is finding like it comes down to local finding mm-hmm. real estate in local um, jurisdictions because you need that um, to be so every state is different, but in New Jersey you need that before you submit your state application. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I think like guidelines and. Um, having accessibility to your regulators, asking questions, all the information is beautifully laid out on their website. They have a lot of FAQs. It's ongoing, which is good. Um, So it's not like a strict deadline. Um, I love all of that about New Jersey. I think they're doing a fantastic job so far. Um, I think it just comes down to because New Jersey, right, it's a smaller state, really highly populated. It's getting that approval, like Mm. finding that warehouse, finding that storefront, going to the local authorities, asking them, telling them why this is good for you. And I've seen more than often a lot of rejections in that stage. So I think the state is still doing a good job. I think it just comes down to convincing those um, smaller cities and towns. Mm, Got it. So uh, one last question, you know, uh, before we wind wind up about the international brands, right? I think uh, trying to enter in uh, US, any any tips or any pointers, any, you know, uh, clarifications for them? Of course, you know, I'm going to hand that question back to um, vet your partners. Um, You know, you're going to need a lot of help, especially for international brand laws are different. Um, Mm -hmm. Even between local council here, your laws are different. Like you were saying, Illinois versus Ohio versus Pennsylvania versus California. Um, 
I'm going to toot my home finding a good law firm that has accessibility in multiple offices in different. So nations. how do you, you said vet your uh, partners? Let's say you know I, I want to do business with you. Let's say you know how do I vet? What is the process? Are there any tips for um, apart from the Dun and Bradstreet score and all that basic stuff? How do you actually vet a, a company? Yeah. So when you, um, you know, a lot of owners, when they apply, you have to disclose a lot of personal information. So depending on, you know, laws keep changing. Michigan was really strict back in the day that you had to do your disclosure of your financial statements for like five, six years. You would have to also do your spouses. Mm. So it goes to that extent. So depending on what state, like the basic you know, that you should vet, did they pay their taxes? Mm. Uh, do they own any child support or alimony? What are, what is their criminal record? What experience do they have in the industry? How we, how does their resume fit into the application? Um, do they have more contacts and a good team out here? Do they have real estate? Do they have real estate connections? Um, so, you know, getting, instead of just saying, oh, you have a lot of money and let's make this partnership. I would say you should ask those hard hitting questions from the beginning. Like if I was looking at, like you're saying, if you were vetting me, I would want you to ask me to be like X, Y, and Z. Did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? Okay, we'll move forward. Yeah, you know, those are, those are good points. Uh, what, uh, sorry, I keep interrupting you, but you were oh. saying uh, the other part. What, what other tips were there for international brands, you know, trying to come here? Yeah, so um, uh, same thing. So um, looking at, I would say finding the states mm -hmm. um, that you want to hold a long-term relationship with too, right? Because this isn't just, um, it's it's a lot of time, it's a lot of investment, it's a lot of money. So if you're an international brand, really, you know, most of this information is available online, like mm -hmm. on website. You don't need to dig any further than that. You can search, you can go read the bill yourself or the regulations, do a quick overview. Um, you know, does this fit your requirements? Um, another thing that I didn't point out earlier, some states limit, you know, if you can do flour or if you can do pre-rolls or mm -hmm. if you can do that type of product, if you, if that's important to you, then you should figure out, you know, does that state let me do that? True. Like if the whole portfolio, uh, you know, your product extensions and future, uh, yeah. what's true. Yeah, exactly. And then, um, even medical versus rec, right. I think that's mm. a big difference. Um, personally, like. If it was me, I would um, want to be in a state that offers both. I think mm -hmm. that expands your business a lot um, uh, in a more expansive state. But you a very a lot of businesses just do medical, which is great. I mm -hmm. think there's a really good market in medical because that's the only thing they're offering. And then there's been an influx of medical patients that are going to come to your dispensaries. They're going to be constant users. Mm -hmm. Unlike rec, you know, it might be one or two. Um, so your medical industry is still very huge. Um, so to figure out that or to figure out if it's just medical, is there hopes for it to go recreational um, mm -hmm. yeah, and things like that. So if oh. I was an international brand, I would do my research ahead of time on what you want. And, and minimum uh, requirements, like, you know, as I said to the previous question, I just want to make sure I understood correctly, you know, a German brand or an Australian uh, brand, which may have THC, let's say any, any country which allows THC, want to expand uh, in Illinois versus mm -hmm. an Oregon or a Californian or a Colorado brand, are the rules exactly same for anyone outside? 
Um, so are you saying, so let's say if this German brand comes to Illinois and versus coming to Oregon on how they want to No, I'm up? saying if a German brand XYZ comes to, uh, Illinois versus, uh, this, a brand, same brand in Oregon coming in Illinois and both yeah. trying to enter and looking for co-packers and whatnot, are the rules exactly the same for them? Yeah, pretty much. Yep. You just want to set up your LLC. Like you don't have to, uh, you know, go a lot further than that. You're not like, you don't have to go through some special mm. federal or even state requirement that it's international. Like okay. you can definitely live, we have, I mean, the most common is Canada, right? So Canada is federally legal yeah. and America is still federally illegal. And so uh, we have a lot of partnerships with Canadian brands. Canadian so what's brands this deal? Just some fun question. What's this deal with, what's the scam Canada? Like what's this deal with whole, uh, I thought that it's all mainly money is legally raised there. So usually people set up there because, you know, the federally money issue was there in the US, right? Like, or I think, yes. I don't know, but it's mainly to raise money. People set up companies there. Um, to, so if you're a Can Canadian brand and your parent company is in Canada, is that what you're saying? And just saying, saying like, I just see US operations, but the companies, it's like Delaware thing, you know, I just see companies in Canada, you know, but the 90% of the business is in US. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, like you said, it's just a money thing. Like if they can expand um, Canada, um, I don't know too much about Canada law, but I do know they obviously went federally a lot earlier than us. And for some reason, the money's here, right? Like they want to come here, like they can set up. And the cool thing is for them is that they can be on the American stock exchange because they're a Canadian company. Wow. Whoa. So they're also on our, our stock exchange. They're also having shops. That's so here. funny. And, and US companies cannot be on that. They can't be on American, but they can be in Canadian. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it just comes down to money. You know, it's, it. uh, they want to expand. And uh, I think sometimes when you limit, uh, I mean, and people will argue this in the industry that because it's not federally legal yet, mm -hmm. that having that you know limited amount of players and having limited amount of um access to like medical patients and kind of building your way you're making a lot more money there than if if it's like alcohol and it's legal then you're, everyone has shop right everyone mm -hmm. can set up um so the people that are in the industry right now are you know are tending to do very well super so thanks a lot actually any other closing remarks for you know our potential clients out there you know, um, that's it. I can just hone, you know, really uh, em emphasize on compliance for legal and getting them involved in the beginning. It's a highly regulated industry. And um, to just keep vetting your partners and start cultivating those relationships, whether you're an existing brand or you're trying to break into the industry.